Let's open our Bibles now to Acts chapter 5 tonight. Uh, we have some more members that are away today that will be sharing testimony here in the future. But we come to Acts chapter 4, and they're told, do not speak in the name of Jesus. And they say, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to obey you, or are we going to obey God? So that brings us to chapter 5 now. In chapter 5, they are going to obey God. And the Bible says in Acts 5, 14, that believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. So on the day of Pentecost, you have 3,000 saved, and, and then you have 5,000 saved, you have 4,000 saved, now you have multitudes saved, and you think, well, this is great, man, the church is growing, it's a mega church, and the leaders are against it. And just as you heard these folks share tonight, they testify of what they've seen and heard, but to do so meant it was going to cost them. And so now we, we drop down to verse 27. And when they had brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, verse 28, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? We are your leaders. You need to obey us. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hang, hanged on a tree. Him God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses. Of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. And then it goes on to say, there they just don't know what to do. And Gamaliel warns them, "You, if God is in this, you can't stop it." And so this is what they do, verse forty. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. They thought a good beating will beat it out of them. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now, ladies and gentlemen, these are our spiritual ancestors. They have trailblazed the way for us not to quit not to stop not to be intimidated and when it doesn't go our way and they are actually beaten how did they respond they rejoice we're talking high fives high fives we got to suffer for Jesus remember he's the one who said if they persecute me they're going to persecute you uh, blessed are you when you are persecuted and they shall speak all manner of evil against you falsely what did he say he said rejoice and what be be glad no 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 be exceeding glad for great is your reward where in heaven so tonight church family as we consider this anniversary and as we consider this this season and this moment in 
our nation's history where local leaders are beginning persecutions against our fellow brothers and sisters around the country, we have to decide where are we going to stand. And I've already read it to you. It's Acts 4, it's Acts 5. We ought to obey God rather than man. We're going to obey God rather than man. And that means we're gathering here tonight. We're gathering here tonight because we are obeying God. There may come a moment where to gather means to disobey the government. In fact, it's already happening. It just depends on which state you live in. And so we are, we are blessed tonight to be in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm glad that, that God, I, lived in, I was born in Pennsylvania, lived in Texas, lived in Virginia, and when looking to be able to start a church, I'd heard that New England had a great need, and, and so being south of uh, Washington, D.C., I thought, okay, well, New England begins Pennsylvania going, so I started the first, the first, okay, I went to public school, I didn't have world geography or U.S. geography, so, so it's because of ignorance that I thought, okay, we'll start in Philadelphia and kind of work away north and up to Maine and we'll find a place to start a church, and that's the honest truth, and so Philadelphia was the place, and God opened, so, so that's how we are here tonight, but because we're here tonight, we have an exemption from our governor, but we have friends. They don't live in Pennsylvania. Pastor Charlie Clark is in New Jersey. I saw a little video clip this afternoon. He's got two court cases in the next couple of weeks. The government is fining them every Sunday they meet. And he said, if we lose, it could be thousands of dollars of fines and six months imprisonment. This is the church where Pastor Eifert goes to teach in the Bible college. He taught a semester there, and last semester you taught online, is that right? As an adjunct remote professor. Maybe that's why he wanted to do it online and stay in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Not cross the river and get over there. These are our friends in ministry. We listen to their family music and in our home. We played it here in church before. We want to pray for the Clarks. Pastor David Tice was scheduled to preach here on his vacation, uh, Memorial Day weekend, but he didn't come. Pastor David Tice is the pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. You know that Jody and I were there, spoke at their conference in September. What a great work God has done. He's been there 40, 40 plus years in Sin City, building a work for Jesus Christ. Ingrid, if you just raise your hand, Ingrid was at the wedding uh, yesterday, a friend of Katie Davis and Megan, and, and in the summer she visits her mom and she attends that church. The Supreme Court, not Nevada, but the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision this week in a 6-3 vote against the Calvary Chapel that sued to be able to have more than 50 people in attendance. They sued the state and said, we'd like to have 90 people because you're discriminating against us as a church. 
Because if you're a movie theater, if you're a casino, you're allowed to have 50% attendance. So a 2,000-seat casino is allowed to have how many people come? 1,000. A 400-seat movie theater is allowed to have how many come? 200. But if you're a church with a 1,000-seat auditorium, 50 people. Is that fair? That is discrimination. And sadly, our own U.S. Supreme Court ruled against them. Pastor Tice is a friend of our ministry. Shauna Ham taught there for a couple of years in school, right? She, she was a school teacher there. Pastor Chapel, Lancaster Baptist Church, California. Now, before, they didn't go to court, but other churches uh, sued. They got together four churches, and it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted against the churches in California. And so, at 8 o'clock this morning, and 8 o'clock Sunday morning last week, Lancaster Baptist Church and many other churches, they, they met outside. They met outside. It's the middle of the summer. It's the desert. It's hot. It's dangerously hot. These are our friends in ministry. But we live in Pennsylvania. We don't have to worry about that. No. No. We, we bind together with them. And I want us to pray for them. Now that's three pastors, but uh, there's really two or 3,000 pastors that are Baptists, not to mention many other evangelical pastors who believe in Jesus Christ, representing millions of people, and they're at this crossroads. What do we do? And so when our governor changes his mind, did you know that our governor has changed his mind a couple of times? <laughs> By the week. And so our wedding yesterday was outside because 10 days ago he changed his mind. He knows now that there are two Supreme Court cases that will side with the local governments, the state governments, going against churches. And so, so they're doing this. The king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. But as we saw this morning, God allowed Haman to do his evil deeds. God allowed Haman for Satan to say, check. But God said, checkmate, checkmate. And so I have, a, I have a letter. I'd like to read just a portion of it to you tonight. And since the clock's not on the wall, so I'm really not concerned. Oh, actually, I cut it down. But this is a, this is a letter from uh, Pastor John MacArthur. I think the Hesses sent this particular copy to me. Pastor MacArthur, he's, he's been in the same church 50 years. Um, he's now 80 so I got a couple years to go, Lord willing. And so Pastor Chapel and Dr. MacArthur have been in touch, and they're, they're, they're bound together because they're, they're all in the same boat. So then the governor says, okay, if you meet 
You can't sing. Okay, if you want to have a Bible study in your home, you can't do it. You want to play poker in your home, that's okay. You want to gamble in your home, that's okay. You want to have a Bible study in your home? You can't do that. You can't do that. So let me just read a couple of portions of it, and then I'm going to ask a couple of our pastors to come and just to say a short prayer for these other ministries and, and to help us to be resolved as our men sang. Perfect song for tonight. This is entitled, This is an Open Letter to the Government Officials in California, a Biblical Case for the Church's Duty to Remain Open. Dr. John MacArthur writes, Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church. He is also King of Kings, sovereign over every earthly authority. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregation worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Now, this church is in Panorama City, 20 minutes from the airport. I think uh, maybe maybe seven, 8,000 people attend. Some will think such a firm statement is in conflict with the command to be subject to governing authorities laid out in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Scripture does mandate careful, conscientious obedience to all governing authority, including kings, governors, employers, and their agents. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still bind the consciences of individual Christians. We are to obey civil authorities as powers that God himself has ordained. However, while civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of those texts grants civil rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions within human society. You know them. The family, the state, that's the government, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being with the, within the boundaries of a nation or a community. When our leaders in Philadelphia that had arrested more than 100 looters and rioters and lawless people and said, you are free to go, we will not prosecute you, they violated God's laws. God has not granted civic rulers an authority over the doctrine, the practice, the polity, that's the government of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have the authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. And similarly, the government officials have no right to interfere in church matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors. Therefore, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors of Grace Community Church, 
respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. Said another way, it has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. We got an amen on that? Jesus affirmed that principle when he told Pilate, you'd have no earthly authority over me unless it had been given you from above, John 19, 11. And because Christ is the head of the church, church matters pertain to his kingdom, not Caesar's. Jesus drew a stark distinction between those two kingdoms. And he said, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar, and to God the things which are God's. Our Lord himself always rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's, but he never offered to Caesar that which belongs solely to God. As pastors, we cannot hand over to earthly authorities any privilege or power that belongs solely to Christ as the head of the church. Pastors are the ones to whom Christ has given the duty and the right to exercise his spiritual authority in the church. 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13. And scripture alone defines how and whom they are to serve. 1 Corinthians 4. They have no duty to follow orders from a civil government attempting to regulate the worship or governance of the church. In fact, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in the church to a civil ruler have abdicated their responsibility before their Lord and violated God-ordained spheres of authority as much as the secular official who illegitimately imposes his authority upon the church. Our church's doctrinal statement has included this paragraph for 40, more than 40 years. I'll just read just a, a snippet. We teach the autonomy of the local church free from any external authority or control with the right of self-government and freedom from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations. We teach that it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other for the presentation and propagation of the gospel. Each local church, however, through its pastors, and their interpretation and application of Scripture should be the sole judge of the measure and method of its cooperation. The pastor should determine all other matters of membership, policy, discipline, benevolence, and government as well. In short, as the church, we do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as he has commanded. The church is Christ's precious bride. She belongs to him alone. She exists by his will and serves under his authority. He will tolerate no assault on her purity and no infringement of his leadership over her. All of that was established when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Conversely, the church does not in any sense rule the state. Again, these are distinct kingdoms. Human governments are not so trustworthy. I'll not read that paragraph to you. Uh, the church, by definition, is an assembly. Uh, that is the literal meaning of the Greek word for church, ekklesia, the assembly of the called out ones. A non-assembling 
assembly is a contradiction in terms. That's why we don't believe in a universal church. A church meets. A church meets together. Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together, Hebrews 10, 25, and no earthly state, not California, not Michigan, not Illinois, or New Jersey, or New York, or Pennsylvania, has the right to restrict, delimit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church and nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. Don't we admire the believers in countries where Christianity is illegal? Don't we admire that they meet regardless of permission from the state? How many times have we had missionaries tell us the stories of, of Christians meeting in the back of a factory in a boiler room? or in, a, uh, in, in an apartment building where they, they come and go at different times. When officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the saints to gather as a church. When officials prohibit singing in worship services... They attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the people to obey the commands of Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. When officials mandate distancing, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible to experience the close communion between believers that is commanded. Many scriptures are given. In all those spheres, we must submit to our Lord. Although we in America may be unaccustomed to government intrusion into the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history that Christians have had to deal with government overreach or hostile rulers. And he lists multiple instances in history where Christians in Europe said, we will disobey God even if it means beatings, imprisonment, or death. As government policy moves further away from biblical principles and as legal and political pressures against the church intensify, we must recognize, now listen, listen, the Lord may be using these pressures as a means of purging to reveal the true church. Succumbing to governmental overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile climate, there is only one way. Bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even where governments seem sympathetic, sympathetic to the church, Christian leaders have often needed to push back against aggressive state officials. But again, Christ is the one true head of the church. And we indeed, we intend to honor that vital truth in our, all of our gatherings. For that preeminent reason, we cannot accept and will not bow to the intrusive restrictions government officials now want to impose on our congregation. We offer this response without rancor and not out of hearts that are combative or rebellious, but with a sobering awareness that we must answer to the Lord Jesus for the stewardship he has given to us as shepherds of his precious flock. To the government officials... We respectfully say with the apostles, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye. 
And our unhesitating reply to that question is the same as the apostles. We ought to obey God rather than men. Our prayer is that every faithful congregation will stand with us in obedience to our Lord as Christians have done through the centuries. Church family, it's anniversary. We're celebrating what God has done. But there's a storm coming. There's a tsunami, a persecution around the world. And it has swept upon our shores. And what some officials meant for good in the protection of health, others are twisting for evil. It is evil to not be even-handed. And in the beginning, it was even-handed. And I defended the position of the government. But if you go back and check the records, I said there may come a day where it won't be this way. Well, that day has come to New Jersey, to Nevada, to California, to Illinois. Not yet to Pennsylvania. We can say, praise the Lord, we're in Pennsylvania. And praise the Lord, we're in Pennsylvania, all right? But if it comes to Pennsylvania, the Bible's not changing. The Bible's not changing. And what was said by Pastor MacArthur and Pastor Chapel and Pastor Clark and Pastor Tice, we stand with them. So I'd like uh, our associate pastors to come. And if you would, uh, you can spread out here on the platform. And I'm not going to ask you to pray long, but I'm going to ask you to pray uh, specific. And so if... Uh, if we can have Pastor Ivor pray for Pastor Clark, Solid Rock Baptist Church. Pastor Joyner, we'll ask you to pray for Pastor Tice, Las Vegas, Sin City, Liberty Baptist Church. Since you're moving down south, that seems appropriate that you would go ahead and pray, pray for him. Uh, Pastor Colt, if you'd pray for Pastor Chapel. Uh, since your daughter graduated from West Coast Baptist Church. We've got the three churches I mentioned covered. So Pastor Elstock, we're going to pray for Valley Forge Baptist. Okay? So let's uh, just, just a brief prayer as we come before God. We'll all be praying together uh, for these ministries in light of the moment, Acts 4 and Acts 5. Uh, we celebrate uh, what you've done for us these 36 years, and at the same time as we, we face what has happened with the coronavirus, we are well aware of the pressures uh, upon the church to be faithful to you. And Lord, I pray that as we go through these days, you would find us, as your word tells us there in 1 Corinthians, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so, Father, we need your strength. We need your help. We need your power. We need your grace. You haven't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind to face these challenges that are before us, whether they be political or health-related or what have you. Lord, we want to be strong in the Lord and the power of your might. 
And so we thank you that you're on the throne. We thank you that you are sovereign over the world and over America and over Pennsylvania and you're sovereign over Montgomery County and you're sovereign over Upper Providence Township and this very property and our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we can call upon you, that we can rest in you. And Lord, I pray now that you would help us as a church. I pray that you would help Pastor Charlie Clark and the church there at Solid Rock Baptist and all the ministries that they have going on in New Jersey right now. Lord, they are facing persecution and the threat of not to meet or the threat of fines or even imprisonment. God, would you please give them the boldness and the strength and the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man, because the fear of man brings a snare. But whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And so, Father, we, we commend them to you, asking for your protection upon them, asking that they would be bold, that they would not cower in the face of uh, opposition and persecution. And, Lord, we pray that you would give the leaders, uh, Pastor Charlie Clark, his dad, and the other Clark family there, and the other pastors, that you would give them uh, great wisdom to lead their church and to be strong in you. And, Lord, that uh, you would even open the eyes of those in our public uh, civil authorities, open their eyes to their uh, hypocrisy, and we pray that they would repent of that and, Lord, even bring about righteousness to that state and to our land. We commend all churches to you as these men continue to pray. Father, we are privileged to continue to pray here tonight. We're privileged to come before you. And we acknowledge right now, here and now, that we're not bringing news to you, Lord. We're just acknowledging that you're God and that you can do anything and you know all things and you're everywhere. Lord, I pray as uh, we even read in Habakkuk that sometimes we may have a thought that uh, you may not be working as we had uh, considered at one point. But, Lord, you were very clear that we would be astonished at what you're doing. I pray, Lord, that you would show that astonishment through believers tonight and through local churches. And I pray particularly and specifically for Pastor Tice and Liberty Baptist Church there in Las Vegas, Nevada. I pray, Lord, for him, that you would empower him, that you would encourage him, you would strengthen him, you would fill him with your spirit, you would give him a wisdom that is beyond himself, and you would surround him with people, Lord, that would walk with him, that would stand with him, that would kneel with him, that would worship with him, Lord, in a time that's very challenging. And I pray, Lord, that you would find him faithful and true to your word as he has been for so many years now, I think more than 40. So would you protect him, and protect that church family. And would you find them faithful to you, faithful to your word. And Lord, I pray that a fresh wind of encouragement and strength would blow in upon them. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind them very clearly that you will never leave them, never forsake them. And I pray you find them clinging to you and clinging to your word. Now, Lord, I pray even in this time that is a great challenge for them against governmental suppression, I pray that you would use this as a time that the gospel would go forth. And as we're told, even in Acts chapter 10, that the people in that community would be astonished at what you're doing and that the gospel of Christ would go forth and lives would be transformed. And there would be, Lord, a cleansing that needs to happen for those that may have thought they were believers, this would be a time of a reality check and they would make sure of their salvation. Lord, do a great work. 
we'll thank you for letting us be a part of it. Find us faithful and bless as we continue to pray in Christ's name. Father, we can never thank nor praise you enough for the wonderful privilege of prayer. We thank you that we hear your children and we're children of the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're reminded of the words of Isaiah that these nations, all the nations of our world, are like a drop in a bucket compared to how wonderful and great you are. The Old Testament says you're the Lord of hosts. You're the God of the universe. And Lord, I pray that you would humble these government authorities more than they've ever been humbled before. Because, Lord, you truly uh, hate pride. And Lord, they're full of pride. They're full of pride. They're supposed to be instruments, Lord, that punish the guilty and protect the innocent. And throughout this world, and throughout the governments of this world, and our governments, our local governments, our state governments, our federal government, and yes, our local governments, they're not doing what you have ordained them to do. I pray you greatly convict them of their sin and show them their sin and their wickedness and their pride and their unrighteousness because they're hurting your children. Father God, they're hurting your children because we want to obey the Bible. We want to go by the word of God. We want to honor you and please you and do what's right and biblical. And these leaders are saying, no, you can't do it. But you, Lord, we're going to obey you by your grace and your power and your spirit. And I thank you especially for Pastor Paul Chapel, a man who loves you. Lord, that's one thing about this dear man, Pastor Paul Chapel preaches the word of God. He loves Jesus Christ. He exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for Brother MacArthur as well, Pastor MacArthur, and those dear pastors, all of those Bible-believing, Bible-preaching ones in California especially, that you would humble that wicked, ungodly governor. Pray for his salvation. Oh, yeah, we do. But, Lord, we pray you'd humble him. The only way he's going to get saved is by being humbled. The only way our elected officials and appointed officials, and yes, the judges in our land, if you would humble them, humble them more than they've ever been humbled before, because that is right, and that is biblical. And may we do all we can. We pray for their salvation, but we pray that they would be convicted of their sin and their need of Christ. So I pray for the dear churches, Pastor Chapel, Pastor MacArthur, please help these men, and please help the people of God in these states and I've been asked to pray for specifically for California. Yes, my, my children graduated from college in California. My daughter-in-law is from California. But, Lord, please help these dear people. They love you, Lord. They're your children. These folks are hurting your children. They're hurting your, your children, Lord. And you, I know you don't want that. Please help them. Please help them. As only you, God. Thank you for being... Oh, Lord, we can't thank you enough. What a great heavenly father you are. You're the best friend in the world. You're the best father in the world. And we can't thank you enough. And thank you for 36 years of blessing Valley Forge Baptist Temple. And thank you for all the men and women, boys and girls, that have been saved through this ministry. And please use us, by your grace, another 36 years to honor you and truly fulfill the Great Commission. And thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we are in great need, and we need you. And Lord, there's 
so many in our congregation, older members in our congregation that never thought that we would ever see a day like this in America. And it's here. And no, this isn't new to the world. There's been persecution throughout church history. It's now in our country. Have that as well. If you have a Bible, please open to the book of Esther this morning, right in the middle of your Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Kind of easy to find Psalms. And then just back up two books to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. For such a time as this, God has this moment for you and I to make a difference in the lives of others. Esther chapter 9. Everyone knows the famous Disney princesses, don't you? I mean, you got Snow White and Cinderella, Belle, Jasmine, Moana. You can say, I know my princesses. Uh, they all have a story. Uh, Tiana kissed a frog. Rapunzel had magical long hair. Mulan, what did she do? Oh, she saved China. That's kind of important. Uh, and there seems to be a, a, a similar princess storyline. In all of them, there's obscurity. Many of the princesses, they came from obscurity. Maybe they were a humble peasant like Belle, or royalty stolen or hidden as a child. And then there's a villain. There's always a villain threatening death and destruction. And there's a prince, a young man, uh, who comes to the rescue. And then there's a happy ending. There's always a happy ending with great music. One more thing about Disney fairy tales. They're all fiction, right? Uh, they never happened. They're not true. Uh, they're great fun to watch. If you have a daughter or a granddaughter or a wife who likes that, you eat popcorn, you sing along, and then, uh, uh, but, but they're, they're just not true. The story of Esther checks all the boxes to become a Disney princess story. She comes from obscurity. She was an orphan. There is a villain. I mean, there is someone who actually wants to kill her. There is a prince, someone who wants to marry her, and that's the king. Uh, there's a happy ending. There's a happy ending for the Jews, even though it only lasted for a few years. But here's the key difference. The story of Esther is real. It's true. It's a real story, and there's something more powerful than Disney magic working behind the scenes. What was the magical power in the book of Esther? It's not a what. It's a who. And the who is God. And Esther chapter 9 tells us that they are to celebrate this story, this divine de deliverance. And each one of us, we are also, we can celebrate the divine deliverance by God. We can do it individually, and we can do it together as a church. So would you please stand with me this morning as I read from Esther chapter 9 of this celebration that the Jews participate in. Esther chapter 9, all the way down to verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly. 
as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them, now watch, watch, from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. Let your eyes drop down to verse 28, please. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every family and every province and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. May we pray. Father, today we've come to praise you. We've come to celebrate your salvation, your power, your work, your love, all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you did so long ago, 2,800 years ago. And I pray now that you'd open up our eyes how this applies to our lives and change us and make us more like Christ for these moments together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Every year, every Jew is to celebrate the feast of Purim. And so you ask the question, did, did Jesus celebrate Purim? Well, what do you think? Absolutely. Every faithful Jew in every generation celebrates this feast. Some scholars believe that Jesus celebrated this feast in uh, John chapter 5, the Feast of Purim. Now, Purim is one of the most festive and joyous holidays on the Jewish calendar. And here the book of Esther commands that it be celebrated every single year on the 14th and the 15th days of Adar. And so this year it was March 9 and 10. Next year it'll be February 25th and 26th. And so the purpose of Purim is to celebrate the deliverance of the Jews from a genocide during their, their exile in the Persian kingdom. You had the Babylonian kingdom, where Daniel was, and then came the Medo-Persian kingdom. So how are they to celebrate? Well, we know what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to pray, have prayers, and read the book of Esther in the synagogue. And when Mordecai's name is mentioned and the reading in the synagogue of the book of Esther, when his name comes up, there's cheers and there's shouts. They, they stop the reading and they all shout and say, Blessed be Mordecai! Blessed be Mordecai! And they continue reading. And when they read the name Haman, uh, they stomp their feet and they make noises. They take in noisemakers and they spin them around and they make noise and they shout, Cursed be Haman! Cursed be Haman. Uh, they actually write the name Haman on their shoe, and so they stomp and they rub it because they want to rub the name of Haman out. That's what they do in the synagogues. Number two, they exchange gifts of food with friends. Verse 22. They eat a celebratory meal. They have a feast. Verse 22. They give gifts to the needy. Verse 22. This is what they do every year. And then for 500 years... They've been having parades in the streets, parades of rejoicing, with people dressing up in costumes. They might dress up like the king or the queen or Mordecai. They might dress up like Haman 
Uh, they might dress up in most recent years of anyone, kind of like the Jewish version of Halloween. They might dress up like Elvis Presley or the Beatles or superheroes. They, they dress up in these costumes. Purim is a national dress-up holiday that extends to offices and schools all over Israel, but really all over the world. They are celebrating their deliverance. Just as the Passover, remember the Passover? The Passover celebrates their deliverance from who? From the destruction by the Egyptians. Hanukkah. Hanukkah celebrates their deliverance from the Seleucid kingdom when Antiochus Epiphanes was persecuting them. In New York City, like millions of Jewish people around the world, Jews celebrate this festival of Esther chapter 9, and you can see they dress up in these costumes. What else do they do in New York? This is not a real man. This is an effigy. This is a dummy, and it's depicting the hanging of who? Haman. So if you go to New York City, you're going to see this. I mean, can't you, can't you hear the traffic report? You turn on your radio. Uh, yeah, Jim, we have a gaper delay here in Brooklyn in a Jewish neighborhood at the corner of 16th and J Avenue. Looks like we got Haman uh, hanging from a rope again, and people are looking, slowing down traffic. In 1941, Hitler banned the Jews from observing Purim. Hitler said you could be put to death if you own a copy of the book of Esther. Synagogues were closed on this day. Hitler predicted that if Germany was defeated, then, quote, Jewry could celebrate a second triumphant Purim festival. He knew this book, and so he did special persecutions on these days. On page two of your notes, and so the Feast of Purim is more than celebrating a historical deliverance. The Jews remember all those who tried to exterminate them, both in the past and the present. May I say to you today that no people group, uh, no race, no religion has suffered as greatly as the Jewish people for over 3,500 years. But they cannot be defeated. To fight against God's plan for the Jewish people is to fight against God himself. And no one can defeat God. Can't be done. God will always, always win. And so they celebrate. And I want you to see how their celebration intersects with our celebration. First of all, is God's plan for Esther is to save the Jewish people. You may wonder how the book of Esther can be God's plan to save the Jewish people when the name of God is not even mentioned in the entire book of Esther. Two books in the Bible, God's name is absent. He's not mentioned in Song of Solomon, and he's not mentioned in the book of Esther. So here's the message. God is present even in his absence. God is present. He is there even in his absence, even though he cannot be seen. And all of us who have been through deep trials can't help but wonder how God is working all things together for good when we're having our most painful experience, when we're walking through the saddest time of our lives. But here it is. 
You just can't see him, but he's there. And this answers the question, why wear a mask to Purim celebration? Why wear a mask to celebrate the Feast of Purim? Here it is. It's a way of showing that God is always present, and yet he is always concealed. By wearing a mask, by wearing a costume, they are imitating the working of God behind the scenes. Let me explain. God is so big. God is so great. God is so powerful. God is so providential that he works through the actions of people, whether those actions are good or bad, and he, he does so without violating the free will of the people and without shielding them from the consequences of their actions, whether it be good or bad. Now, there's another power at work here. It is Satan. And Satan is fighting against God and wants to destroy God's plan for salvation for all mankind. Satan wants to stop and exterminate the Jews because through the Jewish people, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, would come. So Esther is the story of a spiritual chess game between God and Satan as invisible players who move real kings and queens and nobles. And when Satan put Haman in place, it was as if he announced, check. God then positioned Esther and Mordecai in order to put Satan into checkmate. And ever since the creation of man, Satan attempts to separate God from the human race that he loves and created. Satan works to keep you and me from God. And so you would be wise. You'd be wise to recognize the spiritual forces in your life that are separating you from God. Better yet, you would be wise to respond to the spiritual forces that are working in your life to bring you to God. Now, how do I do that? Well, you're doing it today. You come to church, you read the Word of God, you pray, you be faithful to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, you grow in your faith, you pray throughout the day, you obey His commandments, you share your faith with others. And as you do, God begins to work and make you stronger in your faith. So how? How is God going to save the Jewish people from Satan's plan to destroy them and he's not even mentioned? Let's see the players. Ahasuerus. He is an angry king. King Ahasuerus is most likely King Xerxes I. He reigned the Medo-Persian Empire, began reigning in 486 B.C. Remember, there's Babylon uh, and then Medo-Persia. He ruled over 50 million people from India and Pakistan all the way into Europe, down into North Africa. He is best known in history for a failed invasion of Greece in 480 B.C. Ten years earlier, Darius I, his father, invaded and attacked Greece and lost. He lost at the Battle of Marathon, and you know that because that's how we get the distance for our marathon uh, race today. And so he wants to be able to, to uh, uh, conquer Greece as his dad failed. And so he has a six-month war council referred to in Esther chapter 1. It concludes with a seven-day banquet. 
After everyone is extremely intoxicated, he commands his queen to come and display her beauty before all the drunken royalty and advisors and generals. And what does she do? She refuses. And he is angry. Historian Herodotus records several instances of his violent temper. There was once some pontoon bridges that he had for his armies, and a storm destroyed the, uh, uh, the bridges. And so he ordered his soldiers to get their whips and to whip the water, whip the ocean, 300 lashes. Just an angry guy. He's the first player. Next we see on page 3, Esther. Of your notes, page 3, Esther, the beautiful orphan queen. She is a poor Jewish orphan in captivity. The 70 years of Babylonian captivity had ended. 50,000 Jews have returned to their homeland, and yet many thousands did not return, and they're scattered. Many are Medo-Persia. Esther is adopted and raised by her older cousin. I'm sure that Esther dreamed of what most Jewish girls dreamed of. She dreamed of meeting a Jewish young man getting married and having little Jewish sons and daughters. Maybe she dreamed that her family would one day be able to move and go back to the homeland, go back to Israel and see Jerusalem and the new temple that was being built. The question she would face is this. Would Esther choose to serve God in ways that did match her dreams? And that's our question. Will we choose to serve God even when it does not match our dreams? And though she was beautiful, so were the other 400 women chosen to be in the king's harem, chosen from millions of women. There had to be something special about Esther that separated her from the other 400 beautiful women in the harem, and that had to be something on the inside. It had to be something about her character, something about her, her, her grace, something about her inner beauty, something about her godliness. The next player in our story is Haman, the adversary of the Jews. Here's the villain of the story. The Bible says that Haman was an Agagite. It's a mouthful. Would you say that with me? Agagite. Say it again. Agagite. That means he is a descendant of King Agag. Does that name ring a bell? Got to go back 550 years. God told King Saul, you need to bring retribution, punishment upon the Amalekites because they evilly treated the Jews when they left uh, the land of Egypt. And King Saul didn't do it. He left King Agag alive, and the prophet Samuel came and put him to death. And so now 500 years later, there's still this animosity between the Jews and the Agagites. Now, do you know... What tribe Mordecai is from? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the same tribe of King Saul. And so Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman because of Haman's hatred for the Jews. He convinced the king to order the genocide of the Jews. There's something very evil about holding on to generational sins for decades and hundreds of years. That's what happens here. One more player, and that is Mordecai. He is the faithful servant to the king. Mordecai serves in the palace. The way Daniel served in the palace, Mordecai serves the king in the palace. He actually foiled an assassination, assassination plot to kill the king. 
Now, if you know the story, his good deed was recorded in the royal archives, but it was unrewarded. And so the stage is set for, oh, there's one more player in the story, but he's not mentioned. It's God. God is the invisible star of the story. God is present even though he is absent. God is not absent. Satan inspires prejudice. Satan inspires hate. Satan inspires unforgiveness. Satan inspires murder. Satan inspires lawlessness. But God is greater. And God is at work. And without violating anyone's free will... God allows this wonderful story to unfold. And so God works in mysterious ways. God is working behind the scenes. Many call it coincidences. Was it by chance that Queen Vashti said no to the king? I will not parade myself before this drunken group of men. Was it by chance his advisor said, this is a national crisis, all women are going to give their husbands a hard time? Was it by chance that Esther was beautiful both on the inside and out? Was it by chance that Mordecai overheard the assassination plot and it was recorded and unrewarded? Was it by chance that particular night the king could not sleep and out of all of the hundreds and thousands of pages of court records he heard that night how Mordecai had saved him was it by chance that Haman came early to the palace when the king wanted a suggestion of how to honor someone special and Haman thought it was him was it by chance that Haman's anger boiled over because he had to parade uh, Mordecai through the streets and that anger boiled over and he built gallows to kill Mordecai was it by chance that Esther asked for a banquet Haman just happened to be there was it by chance that the second banquet that Esther requested for her life and the life of her people be spared as Haman begged at her feet and the king walks back in and he thinks the queen is being assaulted by Haman? Was it by chance the king ordered Haman hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai? Was this all by chance? Do you know what the word Purim means? It means lots. Dice chance you see Haman decided very callously I'm going to kill all the Jews here's how I'm going to pick the day I'm going to roll the dice I'm going to roll the lots and we'll just randomly pick a day ah, the 14th day of Adar we're going to kill all the Jews on the 14th day of the month of Adar and so it's ironic they celebrate Purim the word is lots chance Luck. No, it's the opposite. They are celebrating God's sovereign, divine deliverance. And so they wear a mask. You talk about the Bible being applicable for today. <laughs> they wear a mask. They wear a costume to say God is at work behind the scenes. God is at work through circumstances, good and bad. You may not recognize it right away, but God is at work. Now here's how their story of celebration intersects with our story of celebration. 
God's plan for Esther is to save the Jewish people. God's plan for you is to save you from your sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. God wants you to choose to follow Jesus today. Was it by chance you had a mom or dad praying for you or a grandparent? Was it by chance you had a sister or brother who witnessed to you? Was it by chance you turned on Christian radio when you were in a time of distress? Was it by chance you came to church and you heard the gospel? Was it by chance that right now you are a born-again child of God? Uh, was it by chance that someone asked Joe Natale in 1975 if they could put a, a stack of pamphlets by the cash register of the Sunoco gas station uh, called Trax? Was it by chance a few weeks or a few months went by and my parents picked up the track? Was it by chance that they took us to church and my brother Steve and I were both saved? Was it by chance? For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Just take a moment and think. The things that happened in my life that brought me to Christ, was it by chance? Young people that you were, say, you were brought up in a Christian home. Okay, God's plan for Esther, God's plan for you, God's plan for our church. You see, when you drive in this property, you see beautiful buildings kept up by a godly and faithful church family. When I drive in this church uh, property as I did today, I see the mighty hand of, of God, the working of God. And so I took a little drive, and I went to pick up Amber from work. On the right side here is a picture of a house on Ashenfelter Road. You go down Black Rock, go another mile, make a left turn, not far from where the Murrays live, and you can't even see the house. Four acres of prime real estate in Upper Providence. <laughs> and our little church of 21 people voted unanimously to buy it. 186, is that $185,000. We put the offer in, and you know they rejected it. They took $165,000. They took a $20,000 below market value offer because we had a, a zoning uh, a contingency on it. They said no. Was it by chance three times we voted to buy property, and three times God answered our prayers with an emphatic no. No. So the second time, the one in the middle, Egypt Road. We spent $1,000 on a 13-page contract that took a year to be able to buy acreage. The man was selling 50 acres to develop, and he was, going to, he was going to sell us four acres. And after one year of working on this contract, right there next to the meadows there on Egypt Road in Montclair, he says, he calls and he says, you know, you probably don't want to buy the property because I'm suing the township, taking them to court. I took this picture on Friday. See the for sale sign? It's still for sale. <laughs> it's still for sale. Undeveloped. And the four acres that he wanted to give us, right under the high tension wires. Thanks a lot. And then the third piece there on the left, 
uh, is just on Black Rock Road, just on the other side of 29, right near that new development, uh, the second new development where Jim and Juanita Bowman live. Three and a half acres. Come to the township. They said, no, no, you need four to have a church. Three and a half is not enough. Talk to the neighbor. Talk to the neighbor. Said, uh, township said, I should talk to you about buying a half an acre so we could build a church. He said, well, let me talk to the township. He calls the township. The township says, John Hughes says, well, if you start selling off your property, you're never going to develop it. Three times. God said no. And then in the next slide, this property was not even for sale. Was it by chance? It had one tree in the middle of the property with poison ivy. When we bought it, Monda and I said, you're not going to cut down that tree, are you? I said, oh, yeah, she's Monda Hollinger now. I said, oh, yeah, we're cutting down that tree. We planted 400 trees and bushes in its place. Was it by chance? You see, God had it picked out for us to be able to be here. Was it by chance that God took a kid who was afraid of public speaking and said, I want you to preach the gospel? Was it by chance as I finished my internship and I came to the Philadelphia area that a city clerk in Bryn Mawr office told me it's illegal for churches to meet in public schools. You can't start a church down here. Was it by chance that the head of the Better Business Bureau in Norristown said, you'll never to get space, affordable space in King of Prussia? Was it by chance that the Candlebrook Elementary School just happened to have uh, a breakdown and needed repairs, and they moved us from that location to the middle school with a perfect meeting place, with a pulpit, a piano, a heated swimming pool, and adjacent to the property of Linda Orfanos. Linda, if you raise your hand back there and wave. She says the church was just started for her. Was it by chance? Was it by chance that God brought us here, put us on the 422 Expressway? If God was not at work in our church, there's a big chance you would not be here today or watching online. But he is at work. So what is God's plan for our church? It's very clear. Evangelize our community evangelize our world show his glory through our changed lives and you saw that today with jerry burkleback uh, a hardened heart going the wrong way in life and god worked in his life and now shows god's glory and as you grow closer to god you live less and less like the world and you live more and more like jesus christ as we learn on wednesday nights what is god's plan for our church to display his love through good works you see, you cannot get saved by doing good works, but once you are saved, you do good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. If you do anything good, it's because of God. If you're not doing anything good, God wants you to. And so like Esther, we are alive for such a time as this. And as Christians, we have a long history of helping other people during pandemics and epidemics. A pandemic is an opportunity to love thy neighbor. Throughout history, Christians have sacrificed themselves to care for the needy. Have you ever heard of the Cyprian plague in 249 AD? At the height of the plague, 5,000 
People died a day in Rome. The Cyprian Plague is named after a pastor from Carthage, Africa. Not, not because he gave the plague to other people, but because he, he wrote about it. He preached that Christians were not to waste their times uh, mourning those who had died, but they're supposed to work hard at caring for the living, and they did. Another pastor, Dionysius, wrote that Christians, in spite of the dangers, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need. And their heroic ministry led to an explosion of multitudes of Christians coming to Christ. Historians that study plagues say that in ancient times, the death rates in cities with large Christian communities had half the death rate, half the number of people dying compared to those cities that did not have large groups of Christians. For such a time as this, it's our turn. It's our turn to share God's love. It's our turn to share God's truth. It's our turn to share God's peace. It's our turn to share God's salvation. This is not a time to be a shy Christian. Hey, hey, hey. This is not a time to be a political Christian. This is not a time to be a petty Christian. This is the time to be a Christ-sharing Christian. And that's the fill in your notes. A Christ-sharing Christian. But pastor, don't you know what's happening? Don't fear. But pastor, you got to see this video. Don't panic. But pastor, there's another plague coming. Don't be discouraged. God's plan for our church is to seize the moment and evangelize our community. And so they gave the message, and they said, like Pony Express, you got to send it to all 127 provinces that the Jews can fight back and be delivered. And it's our commission to go into the 127 provinces and to the entire world. Make haste and get the message of salvation out to everyone. And let's celebrate. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you for the inspiration we receive in the example of men and women who believed, who trusted, who obeyed, and who risked their very lives to get your message of hope and salvation to others. Father, I pray now that each one of us will be a part of building up your church, celebrating the working of God in this place. Thank you for the faithful churches around the country and the world. And may we continue to be committed to exalting Christ and sharing the gospel. So I'd like to ask that question now that I asked Jerry so long ago. If you died today, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven, or do you have some doubt? You say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven. I've been born again. I'm trusting Jesus, that he died for me and rose again. I'm not trusting in baptism. I'm not trusting in good works or church membership or giving. I'm trusting in Christ alone. And if you know that you know that heaven's your home, and you've got a Bible reason and the Spirit of God has changed your life. You're not perfect, but you know you're forgiven. Would you raise your hand all over this congregation? I've been saved. God bless you. You may put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. The Spirit of God is tapping on your heart today. Open your heart. Believe on Christ. Would you pray with me right now, whether you're watching online or right here, to receive Christ?
because whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior today, we want to be able to help you grow in your faith. If you're watching online, please contact us that we might be able to help you in any way that we possibly can. Well, we rejoice that 13 folks were saved or joined the church last week, and we had two more join this week. Many of those will be giving uh, short salvation testimonies tonight, as well as the West Coast Baptist College Trio joining us in a short message. So be out tonight, be able to meet some of those folks, and that'll be tonight, 6 o'clock, as we have the college group with us as well. Hey, next Sunday, Dr. Tom Farrell will be with us preaching in the morning service. He has already preached at three Christian camps. You know he's been uh, having a bout with cancer, still serving the Lord. You'll hear an update from him. So next Sunday, Dr. Farrell preaching in the morning. Healthcare Workers Appreciation. Valley Forge Baptist loves healthcare workers. On Saturday, August 15th, we'll be taking gift bags uh, to the hospitals, urgent care, uh, doctor's offices, uh, geriatric center, rest homes. So if you work in any of those locations, call the office, leave a message for Lou Lepore, tell us how many bags, gift bags you would like to take to your location. It'll have a Chick-fil-A gift card. It'll have the, uh, 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 a drawing uh, thank you from one of our kids, a thank you note from them. It'll have the COVID track, what in the world is happening that I wrote. It'll have a salvation track. And we want to be able to show appreciation and care for our healthcare workers, be a part of that. We'll have the uh, um, Kona ice truck down here at Geriatric Center uh, to meet some folks, folks uh, as well. And then we have the uh, construction work day coming up uh, with Pastor Anthony Garris at the Inner City Baptist Church in Camden. And so if you are a carpentry worker or if you're a helper or you got muscles, the next two Saturdays you can help Jack Fry, Kevin Nickerley, uh, meeting here at the church at 6.30 in the morning, being there at 7.30, bringing carpentry tools. Uh, and we need help on both of those days to hang drywall and get that all set up. I keep reading articles. Well, what is the church doing to help with, with uh, uh, the racial uh, issues of our day? Hey, hey. We've been doing it for 25 years through the support of the Conference on Evangelizing Black America. So the next two Saturdays, and you say, well, I'm not a carpentry guy, but maybe you want to give some money to help pay for the drywall uh, to be able to do that. But uh, rather than tear down Valley Forge Baptist, we build up. Uh, rather than just talk about it or walk about it, we actually do something. And so Pastor Garris, uh, this is the third church that he has started in Camden. And since he has been starting churches, Camden has gone from being the murder capital, a most violent city in America, and it has stopped down. So if you go, I promise it'll be very safe. God will send his angels. He'll keep you protected. Uh, but you uh, can pray for those, those that do go. But they'll be there early on a Saturday uh, helping out. And we rejoice that our church is doing something uh, to make a difference. 
We also rejoice with two of our young ladies that are getting married. Uh, yesterday was Katie Davis to David Cipriano. Abby Wendell married to Eric Briggs this next Saturday. And these are girls that were born here, came through our nurseries, came through the school and the Sunday school and the academy and the singles. And, and now they both married youth pastors and they're both launching into full-time ministry. Praise the Lord for that. Let's, let's rejoice in that. Two of our young people going into full-time ministry in one week. You know, some churches never have anybody go into full-time ministry, and we have two of our own in one week. And so we rejoice in God working uh, through uh, these folks. We've had some requests for this song, and I thought how appropriate it would be uh, to share today the uh, West Coast Baptist College Choir uh, singing, uh, Nothing Ever Can, Nothing Ever Will Destroy the Lord Our God Because He Reigns Victorious. Let's enjoy. a shadow in his light. No authority, law, or government challenges his sovereign might. His reign and rule have no boundary. All that is his hands have wrought. Nothing ever can Nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. We are well aware we were orphans once, bent and broken in our shame. Then he sought us out and adopted us. Now we bear his royal name. Every sin or crime we have ever done is no match for Jesus' blood. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. Satan's evil war. And the kingdom of our Savior's life is our soul's 
victorious. He always wins. He always wins in love. He reigns over us. He always wins. He always wins. Our God is victorious. He always wins. He always wins in love. He reigns over us. He always wins. He always wins. set the stage for our message this evening. How many people here remember the name Al Capone? Okay. How many people here ever thought you were going to hear a message on Al Capone? <laughs> you're, not, you're not, but in the early 1900s, Al Capone ran the largest organized crime organization syndicate in Chicago. He controlled everything from alcohol to drugs to prostitution. Everything in that city went through Al Capone. He was finally sent to prison, not for over the 30 murders that he ordered. They could never pin those on him. He went to prison for tax evasion. And after serving 11 years in federal prison, Al Capone was released because of his declining health. 
he uh, suffered from dementia, which was brought on by an advanced case of syphilis. But ultimately, he died of a cardiac arrest at the age of 48 at his home in Florida. But a lesser known part of the Al Capone story is a lawyer who worked for him. His name was Edgar. He had a nickname, the mob gave him a nickname of Easy Eddie. The Easy Eddie had a very good skill of legal maneuvering. In fact, he was so good at it, he not only helped Capone set up uh, a bunch of illegal business fronts and enterprises, but he kept Al Capone out of prison for many years. Easy Eddie. And even though Edgar and his family became incredibly wealthy, in fact, their personal residence took up one full block in Chicago. And even though they were extremely wealthy, Edgar was unable to do the one thing that he wanted to do, and it mattered the most to him. You see, Edgar had a son, and he wanted to pass a good name down to his son. But Easy Eddie was embarrassed and ashamed of the tarnished name that he had because of his relationship to Al Capone. However, in 1931, Edgar shocked the world. Again, he wanted to clear his name. He wanted to give his son a good name and a name that he could be proud of. So Edgar became a state witness against Al Capone. He knew a lot of Al Capone's secrets. And he led the investigators to Al Capone's bookkeeper and, it, and, and his testimony in front of the grand jury ultimately led to Al Capone's conviction. And when Edgar testified against Al Capone, he knew that it would come at a great expense. He knew what ultimately would happen. And sure enough, it did. A few years later, as Al Capone was in prison, Edgar was ambushed as he was driving his car. He was ambushed by two men carrying shotguns, and they killed him. And that's our first man that I wanted to bring to your attention tonight. Now, fast forward about 10 years to our second man. This man's name was Butch. Butch O'Hare. And Butch O'Hare was an American Navy fighter pilot fighting in the South Pacific. And one particular afternoon, uh, Butch O'Hare's entire squadron was sent on a mission. And however, shortly after in flight, Butch O'Hare realized that the maintenance crew skipped an important part of his maintenance on his jet or airplane. They forgot to refuel it. So he knew he wouldn't have enough fuel to get to his mission and back, so he turned around and was flying back to his ship. As he's flying back to his ship by himself, he comes across a squadron of nine enemy Japanese fighter pilots. Butch O'Hare thought for a moment the only thing he could do, these fighter pilots were heading towards his fleet. 
his ship. And they were left unprotected because none of the other planes were there. They were all on the other, on the other mission. So Butch O'Hare did the only thing he could think of. He was above them when he spotted them. He dove, and with his machine guns on his wings, attacked all nine of these Japanese fighter pilots. And even though he had a limited amount of ammunition, Butch O'Hare was credited with shooting down five of those Japanese fighter pilots. And the other four turned around and went back to where they came from. When Butch landed his aircraft, uh, his aircraft on the aircraft carrier, the films from his wing-mounted camera told the hero heroic tale of what he had done, and within a matter of days, Butch O'Hare became the first flying ace of World War II. And shortly thereafter, he would become the first naval recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Unfortunately, a year later, Butch O'Hare, his plane was shot down uh, on a nighttime mission, and he was never found. He died at the age of 29. In 1945, the U.S. Naval destroyer USS O'Hare was named in his honor. But his hometown was not to be, uh, I'm not going to let his memory fail also for this favorite son of theirs. So in 1949, his hometown changed the name of their airport from Orchard Depot Airport to O'Hare International Airport in honor of Butch O'Hare. And I'm sure many of you have flown in and out of O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. And if you do, there is a display inside that airport of this event with a replica of his fighting plane that he had, and it tells the story. So what does Easy Eddie and Butch O'Hare have to do with each other. You see, Easy Eddie, his name was Edgar O'Hare. And Butch O'Hare was Edward Butch O'Hare, named after his father, Edgar O'Hare. You see, ultimately, the son had been given a clean name so he can serve in the military and serve with honor. And he got that name because his father paid the ultimate price to clear his name. And folks, I hope you can see where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ never had to clear his name. Jesus Christ didn't have to make up for a lot of bad things he did, but he did pay the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I could have a clean name and serve him with honor. So if you would, if you look at the introduction with me, I hope you can see the correlation when we get through the lesson. In your introduction there, I'd like to ask you to think through the chorus of the hymn. I've given you the words there. The hymn, Jesus Paid It All, for just a moment tonight, just think through the chorus. 
I'm not going to sing it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So here's the question. How often do we really think about those truths and the impact of what we just read? How often do we really think about that? How often do we really think that Jesus paid it all? And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter is about to talk about. And that's the point that he's going to make here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Because Peter's going to give us four ways to look at Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that will give us a greater sense of appreciation for his costly gift. And hopefully it will encourage us to be more passionate in our love and more passionate in the desire to pursue the holiness that God calls for us. So look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to look at four different ways. The first way that we're going to need to look at Jesus, as Peter says, is number one, Jesus is our liberator. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Peter starts off with these words. He says, for as much as ye know, or in our language, for you know this. You know this already. It's as, it's as if Peter was writing today, now I know you already know this, but I want to remind you of, of, of what you know for your benefit and for your encouragement. I know you already know this, but I want you to really know it. Another commentator put it this way. He said, you know this already, but I want you to know it better, more deeply, and more personally. Turn it over frequently in your mind and study it and meditate on it more. It is so deep that you will never fathom it. It is so useful that you will always benefit from it. Peter says, I know you know this already, for as much as ye know, and then he goes on and says that ye were not redeemed. You were not redeemed. That word redeemed there, the verb in, in Peter's day, meant to release someone held captive, such as a prisoner or a slave, upon receipt of a ransom payment. You were redeemed. It also means to loose something that was bound. So a ransom was paid. We were redeemed, Peter said. So what was this ransom payment? And Peter gives us two things that were not sufficient to pay the ransom to redeem us. And he says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things. In your notes there, not with perishable things, like silver and gold. We were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Peter makes it very clear that perishable things such as silver and gold will never be enough for our redemption. Never. All the money in the world will never be sufficient to purchase one person out of spiritual bondage and slavery. Not one all the money in the world. You are not redeemed with corruptible things, perishable things. It's going to take something far more valuable than gold 
and silver to break off the chains. It's going to take something far more valuable than gold and silver to open up the prison doors. It's going to take something far more valuable to redeem the sinner out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Something far more valuable than silver and gold. Now, we tend to think that silver and gold is something extremely precious and of great value and something that we would like to pass on from one generation to the next. But Peter isn't evaluating the redemption against 60 or 70 or 80 years, uh, period. He's evaluating our redemption in light of eternity. And in light of eternity, gold and silver are incidental. Now, think about this. Gold and silver are going to be so common that God is going to pave the streets of heaven with it. That's gold and silver. Now, the implication for us here this evening is Peter says, don't live for something that God is going to pave the streets of heaven in. Don't live for something that one day in heaven you're going to walk on. Don't live for that. You're not redeemed for corruptible things or perishable things like gold or silver. So we're not redeemed by perishable things such as gold and silver. And then he goes on and says, we are not redeemed with our futile efforts. Now, if you're from the United States, you say futile. If you're from Britain, it's futile. So we're in the United States, so it's futile. What did I say in Canada? Futile? Okay, so it's three syllables for Jody. <laughs> Two for the rest of us. But that's what he says when he says vain conversation. The word vain can also be rental futile. It, it brings to mind like building a house on the sand or chasing the wind that uh, Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. It's worthless. It's futile. Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to describe those who, who suppress the truth of the word of God. He says this. He says, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain, here it is, vain or futile in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Matthew said it. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What is a profit a man if he gain a whole world and lose his own soul? What if he had all the gold and silver in the world? It's all futile. It doesn't matter. It can't redeem anyone. And neither can our futile efforts, our vain conversations. In other words, the unbelieving human race spends its energy and passing, passion chasing, say, after empty, meaningless, worthless goals that have no significance measured against eternity. And that's what our world chases after. Here's how one pastor put it. I think I might have put it in your notes. Life matters on, on earth only when your eternal life is settled in Christ. So let me try to make it practical for us here this evening. Because it is worthless to pursue anything in this life without Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What are you passing down to your children? or to your grandchildren? What are you passing down to your children or to your grandchildren? What are we handing off to the next generation? Do they know that Jesus Christ matters to you or do they know that you go to church? 
Do they know? Do they know that the Bible really matters to you and it matters as much on Monday as it does on Sunday? Does, the, does our children and our grandchildren, do they know that God's approval means so much more to me than man's approval? What, are, what am I handing off to my children and to my grandchildren? Do they know that? Do they know that we're not redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver or vain conversations? We're not. That's not how a person gets to heaven. Unfortunately, many parents today and even in good Bible-preaching churches. They seem more interested in raising the standard of living than raising godly kids. And that's sad. That's sad. So what matters most? Good grades, a good college education, a good job, a good career, a good, a good car, a good house, a good savings account, a good health, Folks, these things are good, but without Christ, they are futile. They are a futile inheritance. I could give my kids the biggest mansion, and it doesn't matter if I don't give them Christ. It's futile. Here's how one man put it. He said, if you do that, you are merely teaching your children to follow you in climbing a ladder that's leaning against the wrong wall. Did you catch that? You're teaching your children to follow you in climbing a ladder that's leaning against the wrong wall. Folks, Jesus is our liberator. He has taken us from those chains, and he's given us purpose and meaning. Jesus is our liberator, but Peter goes on and says, Jesus is our substitute. Look at verse 19. But, here it is, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Peter tells us here, our ransom was paid by the precious blood of Jesus. Now, it wasn't silver and gold. Why blood? Because from the very beginning of time, when God recorded this through Moses in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. This entire sacrificial system, which began just outside of the Garden of Eden after the fall of Adam and Eve, was the bloodshed of an innocent animal for the atoning of guilt and shame. And understand this, folks, this blood, this blood, this blood is precious. And here's what that means. It means it is impossible to define its value. Just think about that. This blood, but with the precious blood of Christ. You can't put a value on this blood. It's so beyond our calculation of our small, finite minds. And it's precious for this reason. And in your notes, because it is without blemish and without spot. Jesus was perfect inside and out. Despite what some idiot CNN reporter says. Jesus was perfect without blemish and without spot. 
He was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is our perfect substitute. He, is, he died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins, which we could never do because you know what? We are not unblemished and spotless. None of us. So we couldn't pay for it. We're not qualified even to pay for our own sins, yet alone anyone else's. But Jesus was. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, but it bears repeating so we can think about it again. Jesus died a death we could not die in order to pay a debt we could not pay. Jesus died a death we could not die in order to pay a debt we could not pay. And guess what, folks? Guess what? This, is, this again, is, I, I love being able to teach because you get to study and God gets to work in me first. I love this. Because verse 20 says this, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You see, folks, if you want to fill in the blank, this sacrifice of Jesus was part of God's plan from eternity past. The death of Jesus Christ was according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, the crucifixion was not an afterthought. The crucifixion wasn't plan B. It wasn't like God was watching from heaven and he looked down and saw what was going on in the Garden of Eden and he said, oh my, look what Adam and Eve are doing. What are we going to do about it? This was not plan B. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan from eternity past. And Peter preached about it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he said this, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And here, here it is. Do you, want, you, do you realize what this means for us? I want us to really think about this, because this has really been, been on me all week. It means before you were born, in fact, before the worlds were even created, Jesus Christ already decided to die for you. Before you were born, before the world was created, Jesus decided to die for you and me. Becoming my substitute on the cross wasn't plan B, it was plan A. There were no other plans. This was the plan. His death wasn't an accident, it was an appointment. Before the foreordained of the world, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is our liberator, and Jesus Christ is our substitute. And move on to number three. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Again, look at verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The word was manifest can also be, be rendered to become visible also has the meaning of bringing to light. So, so Jesus became visible. Peter's referring to the moment in history when God, the God-man appeared on earth in the form of a baby, and that's what he's talking about. He became visible. He was manifest. 
He was manifest. Peter says the invisible God became visible when he was revealed. John says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It became visible. He's our Savior. But I want us to understand this. This was done for you. But was manifest in these last times for you. I love that. You see, it's personal for each and every one of us. It's personal for each and every one of us. Now, now again, I believe the most famous, most world-known verse in the world is John 3.16. Would most of you agree with me? Yeah, we all know it. And we can all recite it, but it's really better if we personalize it. So I think I put it in your notes. I want you to fill in the blanks, and I want you to fill them in with your own name because make it personal, people. I know we know it. I know we can do this in second grade Sunday school class, but it's a good thing for us, if I want to pursue holiness, to be reminded of this. So you fill it in with your name. I'll fill it in with mine. For God so loved Rick that he gave his only begotten son, that if Rick believeth in him, Rick should not perish, and Rick will have everlasting life. That's the whole gospel. The whole gospel in the verse of gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, for God, there's the G, gave his only son, O-S, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, there's the P, but have everlasting life. The whole gospel is right there in that one verse. But make it personal. God didn't just die for them. He died for me. God so loved Rick. And that's so important. And that's the whole gospel. And every person needs to make it personal in their own hearts to receive the grace of God. And Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is our Savior. He was manifest, and it was done for me. And, and, and Peter goes on in verse 21, and he starts off by saying this in verse 24, 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up by the dead. Who by him? Only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus himself says it in John chapter 14, verse 6, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Notice what Peter didn't say. Peter didn't say, I don't like that. I'm, I, I want to go to heaven my own way. And that's what people have said to us. I don't believe there's only one way. And I, well, that's your call. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, then have it your way. Okay. You can have it your way. But there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
So we need to have a liberator. We need to have a substitute. And Jesus is our Savior. And finally, Jesus is our conqueror. Look at verse 21 again. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. You see, folks, Christ's resurrection is the exclamation point to our redemption. When Jesus said, it is finished, it's really only one word in the Greek. The word is tetelestai. It's the most profound conclusion ever uttered. His work was finished, and it was for you and for me. And this, is not, this was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of triumph. It was the proclamation of a conqueror and said, it is finished. It's finished. They are redeemed by my blood. And then he goes on to say, your faith and hope might be in God. It's interesting, Peter doesn't say your faith and hope are in your best efforts. No. Peter doesn't say your faith and hope is in how strong you feel that your faith is. No. He says your faith and your hope is in God. And unless someone takes your place, unless someone pays for your sins, and unless someone will carry them on the cross, they cannot do, you we, I, if someone didn't pay, if Jesus wasn't my liberator, my conqueror, my substitute, then I will carry those sins forever in eternity away from God. And oh, by the way, Jesus also said this in John chapter 14, verse 2. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Let me finish this with this story. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of events on November 26, 2008, when a gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal in Mumbai, India. After the carnage had left 200 people dead, a reporter interviewed a guest who had been at the hotel for dinner that night. And the guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard gunshots. Someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table. He said the assassins came walking through the restaurant, shooting at will until everyone, at least so they thought, till everyone had been killed. Miraculously, this man survived. And when the interviewer asked the guest how he lived when everybody else at the table had been killed, he replied with these words. He said, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood and they thought I was dead. Rabbi Zacharias went on to write this. He said, this is the perfect metaphor of God's gift through Jesus Christ to each one of us because he paid the penalty for our sin because we are covered in the precious blood of his sacrifice. You may have eternal life. Folks, when we really take the time to think of these truths, when we really take the time to consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 21, then we are indeed pursuing holiness.
Let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, I do. I thank you again for the word of God and the privilege it is to, to read it, to study it, to chew on it, to be convicted by it, to preach it, to teach it, to live it to the best of our abilities. Lord, I pray that if we did anything this evening, I pray that people would just understand all that you did was for us, for me. Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice that you paid for my sins. And Lord, I pray that you continue to be with each and every one of us this week. Help us to think on these things this week and pursue holiness and pursue a closer walk with you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.